certainly an honor to be behind this pulpit this Lord's Day to bring to you what I hope is something that is edifying and encouraging. This Lord's Day, we're going to be continuing our study in systematic theology and focusing in particular on God's works of providence over the next few weeks. But before we do that, let us go to the Lord our God in prayer. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the worship that we've had thus far and for being able now to look through your word. Help us, O Lord, to understand this important doctrine, this doctrine of your providential care over all of us. And I pray, God, that we may be convicted, we may be encouraged, we may be edified. So please open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts to receive your word and truth. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As a Christian, in a increasingly, I think we could all agree, secular age, understanding this doctrine, the doctrine of God's providence is so vital for our daily life. We are being inundated constantly from the world with ideas that deny God's existence or at the very least his providential care over all of us. The lie of evolution and natural selection has turned us from a people that would see purpose and meaning in everything to now seeing randomness in everything that we see. We were birthed by blind chance and there is no ultimate reason why everything is here, why we're here or why things happen. Now sadly and amazingly, those same people that have removed meaning and purpose from everything and given us randomness and chance want us to somehow create purpose. I'll never forget watching a movie with my wife a year ago, The Theory of Everything, story of Stephen Hawking. And towards the end of the movie, Stephen Hawking, he is talking to an audience of people. And after his speech, there's Q&A session, as normally there is, and one guy comes to him and asks him a question. The question basically was, well, in light of the fact that you deny the existence of God, explain to us your meaning of life, your meaning, where you get your purpose from. And this is exactly what Stephen Hawking said. It is clear that we are just an advanced breed of primates on a minor planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of one of one among a hundred billion galaxies. But ever since the dawn of civilization, people have craved for an understanding of the underlying order of the world. There ought to be something very special about the boundary conditions of the universe. And what can be more special than that there is no boundary? And there should be no boundary to human endeavor. We are all different. However bad life may seem, there is always something you can do and succeed at. While there is hope, or while there is life, there is hope. Now, the audience, you know, gave, in the movie, gave a standing ovation. And I remember telling my wife, after we heard this, that, yes, although moving, I was like, you know, this is probably one of the dumbest things I think I've ever heard. Now, it's been a year later, and while I may not necessarily say it was the dumbest thing I ever heard, the reason why I expressed what I expressed to my wife 
was that based on his fundamental premise, there's no reason for him to come up with this idea of purpose or meaning or anything else. If we're nothing more than advanced breed of primates, there is no meaning, there is no purpose for you to create. Why are you even thinking in that idea of creating anything as far as meaning or purpose? It makes no sense. We want that. They want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to deny God's existence, but in at the same time, talk about meaning and purpose, when in reality, that cannot be. Last time I checked, you don't see slugs walking around thinking about purpose. You don't see monkeys going around trying to find meaning behind everything. They do monkey stuff, monkey business. The fact that we are smarter than them, the fact that we are advanced primates, means nothing. It doesn't mean that we have meaning. Where do you get hope from? Why do you think life can seemingly be bad? What does that even mean, being bad? In this type of worldview, in this type of understanding, the fact that something happens to you doesn't make it bad. It just happened. Get over it. It's pointless for them to talk of good or bad because in a land of meaninglessness, those terms are also meaningless. Ta-Nehisi Coates, a black author, um, one of those you know, woke, pro-black type, type authors, wrote a book some years ago called Between the World and Me. And in the book, in one of the chapters, he talks about the tragic shooting death of someone that he knew, um, Prince Jones, if I'm not mistaken. And in the book, as he's talking about this, as he goes to the wake and the funeral and people are mourning the death of Prince Jones, who by his account, I have no way to prove this obviously, but by his account was unjustly shot by, as I'm sure you can imagine, a police officer. So again, escape the fact of whether or not that actually was the case, whether it was an unjust killing or whatnot. I want you to listen to the words that he said in his book and why I bring it up today. And raise conscious, in rejection of a Christian God, I could see no higher purpose in Prince's death. I believed and still do that our bodies are ourselves that my soul is the voltage conducted through neurons and nerves, and that my spirit is my flesh. In spite of that, he talks about how unjust the shooting was. Think about that. Now, when you read the book, you can feel his anger and his anguish over what he sees as something that's unjust. But let me ask you, brothers and sisters, if there's no higher purpose, if we're nothing but neurons and nerves, if our soul is no, nothing but electricity, why are you mad? Why does it matter? The fact that one person with neurons and nerves just so happened to pull a trigger on another person who's nothing but flesh means nothing. What's the point of being mad over someone just reacting to what's going on. We don't get mad at baking soda when it mixes with vinegar. We don't be like, oh my gosh, that's unjust. That's just a natural reaction. So why? Why are they getting upset over something which, based on their worldview, really is meaningless? Now, these are just some of the examples of the confused thinking that we see nowadays in our culture as a result of an unbiblical worldview.
Now, contrary to what the world says, not only is God alive and real, he is actively preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. All the things that happen in the universe, the doctrine of providence helps us to see and understand the world as God wants us to see it. All working towards his ultimate end goal. While the doctrine of creation helps us to see that we were created, we didn't just come about through evolution and the means of natural selection. The doctrine of God's providence helps us to remember that there is meaning and purpose behind all that happens. There is no such thing as chance or luck. Events are not random. Solomon writes in Proverbs 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So what is from our vantage point more random than casting lots, or to use it in our vernacular, throwing dice. What's more random than that? You throw dice, and then two numbers appear. It's nothing, you know, thought about it. It's literally as random as that. Yet Solomon says that it's every decision comes from the Lord. You take two pieces of dice, throw it on the ground. One comes out of five, one comes out of six. That was a decision from God. Do it again, you get a four and a two. That decision was from God. It is not random. He so controls the universe for his purposes that even those events that would appear random were decided by God. So what is providence? Our confession of faith, chapter five, section one, defines it in this way. God the creator of all things doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. So we see the author, the book of Hebrews, writing this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And he, that's Christ, is the radiance of his God's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. We also see in the book of Psalms, chapter 104, and I'll read not the entire chapter, but a few verses from this chapter. Verses 10 through 11 he sends forth springs in the valley. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Verses 14 through 15. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine, which makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. Verse 21, the young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. And finally, verses 27 through 30, they all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground. We see from these passages the fact 
that God is a God who is very active in creation. He isn't as the deists in the past thought and many Christians today think. He isn't a watchmaker God where after creating the world, he just kind of sits back and then just lets the world do its thing. No, not at all. The author of Hebrews says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. And this upholding isn't a one-time upholding. It is a continual upholding of all things by the word of his power. The psalmist says that the lion seeks food not from their mother, but from God. Over the next few weeks, we will study the ins and outs of God's providence by God and by God's grace. I hope that understanding this gives you a sense of peace and joy and excitement to know that God is actively orchestrating all events for his desired end, especially in light of, let's face it, how crazy 2020 has been. I think we all need to uh, remember God's providence and the craziness that has been this year. To give you an idea as far as where we're going to be going over the next six weeks, this week I'm going to focus primarily on the importance of this doctrine. Next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we're going to talk a little, we're going to talk about providence being a means to God's ultimate end. Then over the following weeks, we're going to start diving into some of the aspects of divine providence, his divine preservation, his divine government, his divine concurrence. Then we're going to talk about secondary causes and God's providence in that. And also we're going to close by talking about God's providence as it pertains to the means that he utilizes, as well as special providences such as miracles and things such as that. So let's dive into what I really want to focus in on. Why is this doctrine so important? And there are several points that I'll be highlighting as to the importance of it. The first is this. It helps us to stop focusing on our present circumstances and look at the big picture. As Pastor Jason went through his teaching on God's eternal decree um, a few months ago, one of the main points, if you recall, that Jason wanted for us to know and get was that there was an end game to God's purposes. There was some ultimate goal that God was trying to accomplish. Do you remember what that end goal was? It was for God to glorify himself and for us to glorify him in the fullness of all of his attributes. Not just love, but his wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God's work of creation was with that in mind. His works of providence is also with that in mind. All the events that take place in life is with that end goal in mind. So, when we consider the events that takes place over the courses of our lives, we can, as best as possible, see them in light of God's ultimate purpose. Rather than focus simply on our present circumstances, we can look upward and see what God is doing through the good and bad circumstances. I'm going to give you two examples from the scriptures of this type of thinking. Let's start first with the story of Joseph, a man that I think we all know in the book of Genesis. Now, if you don't know who Joseph is, he was a man not that well liked by his brothers, save for maybe Benjamin. 
and his brothers sold him off to slavery. While enslaved, he got accused of rape. And since, like nowadays, they believed all women, he got went into prison. While in prison, he interpreted the dreams of two people, a baker and a cupbearer. And forgive me if I'm wrong here, I believe it was the baker who died and the cupbearer who, who didn't. And all Joseph asked was, hey, just don't forget about me, you know, when you're back with the Pharaoh. Let him know what I did. Forgot. Until Pharaoh had a dream. And after Pharaoh had the dream, the, cuff, the cupbearer remembered, hey, you know, there was this guy that interpreted my dream pretty well and some other person who isn't here anymore. So calls Joseph. Joseph accurately interprets the dream. And then obviously we know the rest is history. He gets raised up to be second in command and helps to ensure that famine doesn't spread throughout the land of Egypt and all the connecting areas as well. So this happens. His brothers come to see him. He recognizes his brothers. His brothers don't recognize him. And then we know what happens from there. But let's turn to Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 8. So in Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 8, we have this. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. You see what Joseph said here. He acknowledges the fact that it was God that sent them there. He acknowledges the fact I don't know if you caught it in verse seven. He said, God sent me here to preserve for you a remnant and the earth. That promise that he gives initially to Abraham to continue on. Joseph had enough foresight to understand that his coming here was for that reason. And then we see it continuing in Genesis chapter 15. Verses 15 through 20, after Jacob dies, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, 
Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. Now, mind you, this was a person who got sold into slavery by his brothers, accused of rape. These are not trivial things that happened to him. These are things that people nowadays, if it happened to them, would be dealing with probably post-traumatic stress disorder and all of that. Yet what was his perspective? That there was some ultimate good that God had in mind in all of this. Now, to be fair, I'm sure as Joseph was in the cart, you know, being carted off to Egypt, sold as a slave, I'd be willing to bet that that probably wasn't his perspective at that point in time. I'd be willing to bet that while he was accused of rape and thrown into jail, he probably, as that was going on, was thinking that, you know, what Potiphar's wife meant for evil, God meant for good. Like I'm sure at the moment, that might not have been his initial thought process. But what do we see over time? That perspective, come. He did not hold on to the sin of his brothers, or even the sin of Potiphar. Because, you know, a lot of times you get people that say, well, you know, Joseph's brothers repented. Well, we know who we don't show repenting here, Potiphar's wife. But then yet, he had enough foresight to not even hold that sin as well for us. This is the type of mindset we have to have when we look at our circumstances. So often, we focus on the daily trials that we ignore what God is doing through them. As the old adage goes, we miss the forest, focusing on the trees. We don't see the painting because we're so fixated on all the little brushstrokes. We don't see the sculpture being built because we're so fixated on each individual chisel. We're not looking at the big picture. You see this now, with so many people focusing on the past sins, of America as it pertains to slavery or colonization um, of the Americas by Europe. You know, they force us to focus on the sin, on this sin, and as a result, we forget what God did in light of it. All the millions of people, I will count myself as one of them, that know the gospel as a result of it. Is it a justification for wrongdoing? Are we saying, therefore, it was good what they did, that they didn't sin? That's not what we're saying. Joseph wasn't condoning the sins of his brothers. He was just acknowledging what God did in spite of it. The fact that he was able to look beyond the circumstances and see the big picture. We so oftentimes do not do that when it comes to our circumstances. We miss it because we're so fixated on the here and now and not the big picture. Whenever we consider sins of the past, it's to see, it should be to see the providential hand of God, a good God working his end in the midst of it. I remember my wife and I, this past week, we were reading, um, we like to read every Thursday a little portion of church history and we're going through um, a church history book. I think it's church history in plain language or something like, like that. And we just so happen to be, providentially, I guess, in the chapter 
dealing with the colonization of, of Europe and all of that. And I remember in the book, we there was a man, it wasn't Christopher Columbus, I actually don't remember who it was, who was writing back from Mexico to someone in Spain telling them that while there, they destroyed something like 500 to 1,000 different idols and temples. I remember telling my wife, I was like, that's not a bad thing at all. We may disagree maybe with some of the you know extra things that they did or whatnot that were sinful, but no Christian is going to look at that and be like, well, that was unjust to destroy the Aztec gods and everything like that. Praise God. Praise God. They ought to be destroyed. These are false gods. Another example, uh, just looking at the big picture that I want to draw to your attention, comes from Paul. In the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And we have Paul writing, saying this. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater purposes of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. But Paul writes this letter to the Christians in Philippine while in prison. And it's probably pretty easy when you're in prison to think about the fact that you're behind bars, especially probably in Paul's case, unjustly more than likely. Paul, however, rather than focusing on his circumstance, was able to see the big picture and see how the gospel was spreading as a result of it. Even those who were preaching the gospel out of envy and spite, Paul was able to see, hey, the gospel is still being preached. Praise God. He was able to see the hand of God, like Joseph, thousands of years before him. He was able to see the hand of God and say what man intended for evil, God intended for good. So understanding this doctrine helps you to take a step back. And instead of focusing on your circumstances and what's going on, take a step back and look at the big picture. Look at the hand of God in the good and the bad trials in your life. The second point of why this doctrine is so important is that it gives us a reason to believe in the power of prayer. If God were a God who was distant and not active in creation, what would be the point of praying to him? I mean, really, we bring our petitions to God in hopes that he answers with a yay or a nay or maybe just wait, you need to learn some patience. That can only be possible if God is providentially directing all things. David writes in Psalm chapter three, verse four, I cried out to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. He says again in Psalm 17, verse six, I have called upon you. You will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my speech. I just love the contrast between Psalm 3 and then Psalm 17. 
Because in Psalm 3, he said, he cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me. And then in Psalm 17, he says, I have called upon you and you will answer me. Almost as if he has seen that God has answered and responded to him, Psalm 3. And now he's confident that when he goes back to God and calls on him, that God will answer him. Psalm chapter 34, verse 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse six, the poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. And in verse 17, the righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Psalm 86, verse seven, in the day of my trouble, I shall call upon you for you will answer me. Psalm 116, verse two, because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call upon him as long as I live. Now, I do not mean, and please don't confuse what I'm saying, I do not mean that you can bend the will of God to whatever you like. When you pray, go back and listen through the teaching on God's eternal decree if, you, if that's the conclusion that you've reached. What I'm saying is that our God is not a watchmaker God that does not answer prayers because he cannot act. Now, to be clear, these answered prayers are always in line with his ultimate end goal. But, and we will discuss this in the upcoming weeks, oftentimes God will utilize our prayers as a means to accomplish his ultimate end. He enacts change oftentimes through those prayers. And it takes a true act of humility to go to God and ask him for help, you know, especially in our do-it-yourself culture where we got to figure it out on our own. We got to do it on our own to humble ourselves to be like, you know what? It's not me, but God takes a lot of humility that so many of us just don't have. And it's not just an American thing. It's a Haitian thing, too. It's an African thing. It's a British thing. It's an Australian. It's a human thing. It takes godly humility to know and understand that you are not in control. But God is, and to therefore go to him and ask him for aid and guidance and protection. If you understand that God is very active in the world, that ought to motivate you to be very active in your prayer life. The third reason why understanding providence is so important is that it provides us with a reason to trust in the promises of God. If I promise my family that I will bring them all to Disneyland in California this Wednesday, I'm sure, especially my daughter Noelle being a Mickey Mouse addict, I feel like, would be ecstatic, would be pleased, would be thrilled if they were confident that I would be able to actually deliver on that promise. Now think about it, in order for me to actually be able to accomplish that, to get us to Disneyland, there would have to be a couple of things that I would have to do. One, I would have to buy the tickets to go to Disneyland. Then I would ha probably have to, or first, I'd probably have to buy the plane ticket to go over to California, because it's not like it's a you know, hop, skip, and a jump. It's kind of far from Florida. I would have to reschedule any appointments that I had with you know, clients or, or whatnot to make sure that calendar is clear. Probably would have to find a hotel, Airbnb, something like that. 
would have to also convince the governor to open up Disneyland since technically they're still under closure. Even if I was somehow able to convince Gavin Newsom to open up Disneyland, it's still not a guarantee that we'd be able to go on Wednesday. I could get sick, Deborah could get sick, Noel could get sick, we can get in an accident, the plane could crash on the way there, there might be a fire that takes place in Disneyland, closing it. There's a, a number of things that could happen that would make it not possible for me to fulfill my promise to my family. In the same way with God, if he were not in control of all the events, how could he possibly ensure that his promises to us are kept? Any number of situations could come about that could derail him from keeping the promises. And the promises that God have aren't trivial, like going to Disneyland or promising to buy ice cream or something like that. It's real promises. Ephesians chapter 1, for example, verses 13 through 14, Paul says this, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. That's a mighty promise. Then you have in the book of Romans, chapter 8, starting in verses 23 to 25, we see Paul writing this. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. And then we see Paul continuing on in verse 31 through the end of this chapter. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The certainty, the certainty that Paul has in regards to God's promises comes from the fact that he understands that God providentially preserves and upholds all things. There is not one atom that is outside of God's control. That's why Paul is able to emphatically state nothing will separate us from the love of God because God has all things under his control. 
The fourth point as why this doctrine is so important is that it helps to relieve anxiety and fear and provides us with hope in times of chaos, tragedy, fear, and uncertainty. 2020 is just one of those years that will definitely go down in history books. I am sure that in 10 or 15 years, we're going to be reading docu or watching documentaries on Netflix or whoever takes over Netflix, I guess, at that point about you know, the history of 2020. We're gonna be reading books about how wild and crazy 2020 was, because let's face it, there were what felt like thousands of different things that happened throughout the course of this year. You know, mind you, beginning of the year, we had an impeachment that feels like 10 years ago, but it was back like in January and February. Then we had the coronavirus, we had the markets go completely crazy. We had shootings that led to riots, that led to protests. We had all of these things, and it's October. We still got an election, and who knows what's gonna happen between November and December. Fear and uncertainty, I mean, has gripped the entire nation. And what have you seen as a result of this? Cases of anxiety and depression spiking. I, I read an article yesterday that said, Something like one in four senior citizens, people over the age of 65, dealing with depression and anxiety. And typically, senior citizens tend to be the ones that have the most perspective because they've seen it all. So imagine if one in four of people with perspective are dealing with anxiety, how much more people my age range, in their 30s, people 15, 20 years old. I mean, even before 2020, we've seen um, an increase in suicide attempts among teenage girls and teenage boys. Um, boys, I guess, obviously are more successful at committing suicide than, than girls, but we've seen a skyrocketing in that. You've seen mental health counselors, psychiatrists, psychologists being overwhelmed by the amount of people that they're having to see because everyone is freaking out. They don't know what to do because of everything that seems to be going on is so overwhelming. People are terrified. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? What happens if I go outside? Am I going to catch the virus? What's going to happen if I catch the virus? Am I going to die? Black people terrified, going out in the streets. Oh my God, if I drive my car, am I going to get pulled over? Am I going to get shot? People not knowing what to do, just living in nothing but Fear, I mean, people are afraid to like run now as a result of it. Now for the believer, this is where our faith ought to shine. This is where an understanding of God's providence becomes so important and so necessary. We've all heard the saying, we don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. When you understand that God providentially preserves and governs all his creatures and all their actions from the least to the greatest, then you'll have a peace that the world cannot comprehend. I love what David says in Psalm chapter four, um, verses six through eight. He says, um, there are many who will say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace will I both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. And then you have David saying in Psalm 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
You have David saying in Psalm 27, verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom? Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? You have Jesus telling us in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Do not worry then, saying, Oh, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Providence and a true understanding of this doctrine is something that ought to bring us comfort in times of chaos and calamity. We have done ourselves a huge disservice in the church and in society at large by ignoring this doctrine here of God's providence. When events like COVID-19 happened, Antifa running the streets, again, people fearing whether it's safe for them to even walk outside or run, it's an understanding of the providence of God that gives you hope instead of making you grow anxious with fear. I mean, think about it. Even besides these things, there are hundreds of random things that could take place to kill you in a moment. I mean, literally, you can walk outside, get struck by lightning. You can have an aneurysm that you didn't even know about burst in your head and die instantly. Go out for eat and then choke on food and die. Trip, hit your head, die, just like that. Millions of things. And if you really contemplated that, if life was not orchestrated by God, it was completely random, I mean, that would make you paralyzed with fear. Not even, or what, what's it called? When you fear of going outside, is it or, or, or something? Or a goria. Some, the fear of being afraid to go outside. <laughs> even that fear is, you know, isn't strong enough because you'll be afraid of being in your house as well. Because you can easily die in your home as well. However, it is an understanding of God's providence that gives us confidence to trust God and to look to him. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fearing no evil, because we know that God is with us. We take comfort in the promises of God so that we can move forward and not have events random, quote unquote, or not paralyze us. I love what John Calvin says here in his Institutes on Christian Religion. He says this, when the sky is overcast with dense clouds and a violent tempest or storm arises, 
The darkness which is presented to our eye and the thunder which strikes our ears and stupefies all our senses with terror make us imagine that everything is thrown into confusion. Though in the firmament itself all continues quiet and serene. In the same way, when the tumultuous aspect of human affairs unfits us for judging, we should still hold that God, in the pure light of his justice and wisdom, keeps all these commotions and due subordination and conducts them to their proper end. So when you understand that God is truly in control of everything, you're not anxious over what seems like craziness all around you because you know that although it looks crazy to you, God has it all under control. It's all part of his glorious and sovereign plan. Following this point, so the fifth point, which kind of connects with this and the importance for understanding this doctrine is that it allows us to focus on God's commands for us and not focus on things beyond our control. So early on, for those of you who don't know, I'm a financial advisor by trade. And early on in my financial advising career, I did a lot of prospect, a lot of prospecting to find new clients. You know, growing up in the Haitian community wasn't like I grew up with a lot of money or knowing people with money. So in order for me to make it, I had to find people I didn't know to somehow convince them to give me their money and invest it for them, surprisingly. And I did a lot of prospecting. I went into businesses, I went into schools and daycares, I went into doctor's offices, dentist offices, I cold called people. The only thing I didn't do, admittedly, because I was just too afraid to do, was just like door to door, Jehovah's Witness style, just knocking on, on people's doors. But aside from that, I did pretty much everything. Now I had no idea where my next client was gonna come from. But I was told by my manager that you know, it was law of large numbers. The more people that you are in front of, the higher likelihood that you will generate some sort of business. So what I did was I just focused on that, getting in front of as many people as, as I could, trusting that, all right, if I see like a thousand people, someone is going to, out of that, will you know, trust me enough to have me you know, work with them. I remember during that same time, many of my colleagues also, you know, who started with me, made every excuse to not be prospecting. Ah, this is probably not a good time to, to go to the store. They look kind of busy. I'd hate for the, the owner to get mad at me or ah, it looks kind of quiet. I'd hate he might be in a bad mood. I really wouldn't want to come or yeah, it's probably not a good time to call. They probably just came home from work. Oh, ah, man, it's probably too late. They're probably eating dinner, like coming up with excuse after excuse after excuse rather than just focusing on the only thing that they can do. That's just prospect. When you look through the Bible and you see the directives that God lays out for us, they're clear. They're not ambiguous. When you read through the Proverbs and you see all the nuggets of wisdom that Solomon gives us so that we may thrive, they don't require a rocket scientist to understand what we are to do. However, in our fallenness, you know, we start to doubt the simplicity of many of God's commands. We start to think of all the things out of our control that could take place that might make it impossible for what God says he will do to actually do. But when you have a biblical understanding of providence, you'll be able to focus on what God commands you to do because you know that God is in control. 
of everything else. And I do want to be very clear with what I'm saying here, because I don't want my words to be misconstrued as to saying that you have control over something that God doesn't. That's not what I mean, and that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm saying is that if we know that God preserves and governs all things, that he controls all things, and that God will oftentimes use means to accomplish his ends, then we can trust that if God tells us to do X in order to achieve Y, we don't need to conjure up reasons and scenarios that can lead to not achieving Y. We just do X. It's simple as that. Some examples of clear directives. Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart. But some of us will say, well, you know, that's not a guarantee that that could actually happen. I mean, you know, we've seen people that's fallen away from the faith, even though they grew up in the church. So I think I might have to do something else to really guarantee this. Well, that may be the case that, yes, you may have a person who does grow up in, in the church and then walk away. Your job isn't to worry about that. Your job is to train up your child in the way they should go. And your next job, job is to trust God when he tells you when they're old, they will not depart from it. Stop worrying about what you cannot control and do what God tells you to do. Another series of, of, of verses, this as it pertains to, to work, Proverbs 10, verse 4. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 12, verse 11. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. Proverbs 13, verse 4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. And Proverbs 22, verse 29, do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And now I bring these passages up, not obviously, obviously, for this to be an endorsement of the prosperity gospel or the naming and claiming, or you can get rich and God wants you to be a millionaire type of gospel. But these verses are pretty clear. If you work diligently and you work faithfully and you are really good in the calling that God has given you, you'll do well for yourself. You may not be a millionaire, but you, know, you might develop a second chin from all the extra food that you have in your household. How often do we forget and not focus on just doing what God tells us to do and focus on being the best that we can be in our own work? We don't strive for excellence, but rather we make excuses for our laziness. And then when we don't succeed or we don't get the promotion that we want, we say something like, oh, you know, my boss, she just doesn't like me because I'm a Christian. How often have we heard people who would say that when in reality it's like, no, it's not that your boss doesn't like you because you're a Christian. Your boss doesn't like you because you're terrible at your job. You just don't do a good job at your work. So this idea and understanding of providence should humble us into, think, into understanding and realizing, you know what? God tells me to do this. This is what I'm going to do. And if I'm diligent at this point, I trust that God will keep what he says. We don't have to overthink it. We're overthinkers, a lot of us. We don't have to overthink it. It's as simple as that. Just be diligent. You know, work hard. Be skillful. That's it. Train up your child. That's it. Don't worry about the variables. Don't worry about it. Focus on what God tells you to do. And the last point, which connects with this as well, as to why this is so important, this understanding of providence, is that it provides us with a reason to truly walk by faith because we know that God is in control. 
Proverbs 3, verse 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil. This is probably the most well-known verse that people don't actually do. I mean, similar to my last point, we focus on things beyond our control. We don't trust in God, honestly, with all of our heart. We want the road to be clear first in order for us to move forward rather than move forward and trust that God will make the road clear. We walk by sight so often and not by faith. And a thorough understanding of God's providence over all things gives us the peace of understanding that all we need to do is follow God. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. It really is that simple. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. If you know that God has the whole world in his hand and not one molecule will move without God's permission, what are you doubting? Now, if you don't think that he's in sovereign control, I understand why you're worrying. But if you believe that God is who he says he is and that he does what he says he can do, then when he tells you to do something, you know what you do? Do it. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to through 31. A pretty famous account of Jesus walking on water. Now read this. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. While he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, where the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you have little faith. Why? Why did you doubt? If there was ever an example of God's providence over the created order, I mean, it was this one. Now, if you didn't realize this or if you didn't know this, people normally can't just walk on water. It's not one of those things that we do on the regular or at all. Yet here you have Jesus doing something that by human judgment is impossible. He's walking on water. And then Peter sees the impossible happening and tells Jesus, hey, you know, if that's really you, command me to come over to you. And Jesus said, cool, come on over. Peter gets off the boat and actually starts to walk on water. Now, had Peter, all he had to do was just keep his eyes focused on Jesus and where Jesus was at and what he told him to do. Had he done that, he would have made it over to Jesus. But what happened? 
Doubt started to creep in. The winds were howling pretty badly. And Peter started to wonder, you know, as he's walking on water, mind you, gosh, man, these winds are pretty bad. I mean, I know it takes a lot of energy probably for God to keep me walking on the water. Does he have enough energy to also kind of control the winds as well? And what happens? He starts to sink. Had Peter truly trusted God and focused on Jesus, literally just focus on Jesus right in front of him, just focus on him, ignore what was going on around him and just focus on Jesus, look at him and trust in him. Jesus was going to take care of everything else and bring him to him. And he would have stayed afloat. See, in the same way, all we have to do is just do what God tells us to do and trust in God and he being able to uphold all things and preserve all things and govern all things. This is why, going back to Psalm 23, verse 4, David can say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It's not because he was strong, you know, he knew Kung Fu or Judo or something like that to fight off enemies. He knew that God was with him. All he had to do is just walk. And God will take care of everything else. All we have to do is be obedient to God and what he tells us. And if you understand the doctrine of providence, then all you have to do is just walk. Trust that God will take care of everything. Just do what he tells you to do. Plain and simple. I want to close with this. As Christians... We are called to trust in God's promises and follow his word obediently. We are not to live a life of fear and worry over circumstances beyond our direct control. We are to walk by faith. That only happens if you believe that God is in control over all things. That only happens if you believe that God providentially preserves and governs all his creatures and all their actions. To trust that God will do something, you have to first believe that he can do something. If you don't think he can, why would you think that he will? Therefore, this doctrine of God's providence is so important because I believe that it helps to secure our faith and trust in him. I also believe that this helps us to never lose sight of the big picture. God's grand and glorious plan. Oftentimes, trials and difficulties come and we can't understand why. We don't know why it's happening. Being able to look beyond ourselves and look upwards helps us to put our trials in perspective. While we may not know how it plays a part in God's master plan, we know that it does. So, As we go through this series dealing with God's work of providence, what I want you to ultimately get is that God has a plan and that all the events of your life and of the entire universe are orchestrated towards that plan, his ultimate plan, his grand and glorious plans. Everything is under God's sovereign control. So don't be embittered. Don't get dejected at trials that might come about. Don't get worried about your circumstances. Just believe God. Know and understand that he is in control. He providentially preserves and governs 
all things and trust God. Shall we now look to the Lord, our God, in prayer?